Do you ever have one of those days where a bunch of mundane things seem to pile all on top of one another? I had to take my dog to the vet yesterday. While she was there, she peed on the floor. This is the third time I visited this vet. All three times, she's peed on the floor. But thankfully, the vet was calmer about it than I was. When I got home, I let the dogs out, and they both immediately ran to something on the porch. Oh, what could it be? Oh, it was a dead bird. How did that happen? Did it fly into a window? Was it left there as a threat? Who knows, but cleaning that up, a little harrowing. Then I went for a walk, and within a span of 30 seconds, a car nearly drove into me as it rapidly sped around the corner. A jogger emerged from thin air behind me, and I almost bumped into him. And a man walking a dog seemed so afraid that his dog was going to bark at me that he literally crossed the street away from me, running like someone... You know when you're like fake jogging across the street? That's what he looked like. He had the wherewithal of doing it, but not the hustle of it. (laughs) Anyway, the dog didn't bark at me, so I felt honored with that. When I returned from the walk, I fixed a wobbly leg on a portable desk that had been bugging me for a while, and somehow I bruised my arm in the process. Could this wacky chain of events possibly inspire an entire novel? Mm, Probably not but I certainly feel like I've built character as a result of everything that happened. The dad from Calvin and Hobbes would be proud for sure. And my guest today does a fantastic job of creating engaging characters through her stories. Renita Hora is an award-winning screenwriter, novelist, and audio producer. Her female-driven comedy, Operation Mom, has won all kinds of awards, including the grand prize of the Chanticleer International Book Awards. Her young adult fantasy screenplay, Shadow Realm, has a bunch of recognitions as well, like being a script-to-comic finalist, and her newsletter is chock-full of tips for better writing, marketing your work, sneak peeks of her upcoming stories, because she's got a lot going on, and we're talking about a lot. We're chatting about how to find your perfect audience, how to use AI to improve or hinder your writing, and the importance of promoting real experiences of South Asian culture. I'm Joey Held. This is Good People, Cool Things. And here's my conversation with Renita Hora. To kick things off, can you give us your name and your elevator pitch, but also the type of elevator that we're riding on? Oh, my goodness. My name is Renita Hora. And my elevator pitch for myself, my work, my books, my screenplays, my podcasts. Okay, I started off because that's the kind of elevator we're writing. (laughs) (laughs) I just turned it upside down. Uh, But I write stories that reflect the South Asian experience, whether that is the experience of South Asians within the geographical boundaries of South Asia, or whether it's the experience of South Asians outside of South Asia whatever it might be. Do you remember the first thing you ever wrote? Yes. The first thing, okay, I remember one of the early things that I ever wrote. And I was in third grade. It was third grade. It wasn't an essay. It was a story because that was the homework assignment. I'm pretty sure I would have written stuff before that, but I just don't remember what it is or I haven't been able to lay my hands on it. But I did keep the files From third grade, I think I have to thank my mom for this (laughs) because it was her doing. Um, They were hole punched. We have like a two hole punch in India. And, uh, you know, the papers were put in the file and tied together with a shoelace. So I didn't keep those. (laughs) 
Like and uh, they were these little stories, which the teacher would give us for homework. And um, I have, so I remember those. And I have looked at those, I would say fairly recently. When I say fairly recently, I mean in the last 10 years. <laughs> Still more recently than I think I've looked at okay. my third grade writing. So I'll allow it. Do you, do you look at it and you're like, dang, I had something going here even back then. Or is it like, oh, I've come a long way from, from writing in those days? I've definitely come a long way. <laughs> <laughs> I've definitely come a long way, but I will say this. It was right around that time when I was that age, nine, I think, um, that I remember this guy walking into sort of the room at home that we called the den to visit my mother. My mother has all through her life and therefore all through mine um, had some kind of affiliation with so-called soothsayers, whether it was just like pure garbage <laughs> or superstition or any truth to it, whatever that means, there was always some soothsayer or the other showing up. And I remember this particular one because that's exactly the age I was at. And he was all very, he was very tall. Of course, I was very short. So maybe that's why he was very tall. And he was all dressed in white. He was a sick gentleman, Sardar. And so I remember he was dressed in a white suit and a white turban, you know, like he, I mean, today I would think of him as some sort of rock star on stage kind of <laughs> like that. But as a child, I, I, I remember, okay, who's this guy all, you know, dressed in white. And he said to me very pointedly, like looking at me in the eye, he said, what are you going to be when you grow up? Which is kind of a standard question that many people ask at that stage. But I said to him, I'm going to be writing books. And my, I remember my mother was like, oh yeah, okay, whatever. And he looks at my whatever birth chart and whatnot. And he says, yeah, she's going to be writing books. That's exactly what she's going to be doing. And I remember thinking, well, finally somebody gets it <laughs> in my nine-year-old head. And so that stuck with me because uh, that's what I've been doing. <laughs> nice. That's pretty impressive. I like that origin story. <laughs> have you ever, have you ever figured out, uh, how to like get in touch with the the man, the rock star man again and be like, hey, you were right. I've asked my mother. She has no idea who I'm talking about. <laughs> there have been so many soothsayers along the way. She's like one blends into the next. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. Maybe just generally like write something that tags all the soothsayers ever. And yeah, hopefully... I think be a great story in and of itself is the soothsayers. <laughs> <You know? Yeah. laughs> how, I, how I have been or not been soothed. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's what the sequel is. Build up, then have the sequel that determines you whether you were soothed or not. <laughs> yes. <laughs> now, one of the, the things that I think I, you have a, a good grasp on is finding an audience for you're writing. And I think that can be sort of challenging for a lot of writers. I like to at least say like, oh, as long as I'm enjoying this, that's a good thing. You know, at least one person will get joy out of that. But I think most people want to want more than just themselves to read the work. So as you've grown throughout the years, and as you've written more, have you found certain ways to find that audience? Do you have things that work for you? Or does it really kind of depend on the type of writing that you're doing? All of the above. <laughs> uh, what can I say? I think that journey to finding your audience is a path 
that just continues to evolve. It's like following the yellow brick road. And I don't know if you're ever going to get to the wizard. Maybe you will. <laughs> or if there is such a thing as the wizard, right? Um, because, you know, this whole storytelling journey, I think, really is a composite of many, many stories that uh, meet and, you know, cross along the way, like diverging paths that, you know, intersect along the way. And they take each of them takes on a different flavor. So it depends upon the kind of story that you're writing or bringing to audiences, as you say that's going to be a little bit different. And I have definitely experienced that, struggled with that, contemplated that, continue to do so, all of the above, right? Because, uh, you know, the industry will tell us, and not everyone in the industry, but a lot of the industry will tell us, stay in your lane. Once you've found your voice, if you are writing comedy, or if you're writing fantasy, or if you're writing horror, or if you're writing drama, that's what people know you for. That's what audiences who read your book or saw, saw um, a movie that came out of your screenplay that you wrote, whatever it might be, that's what they identify you as the writer of. And that's what they are going to be uh, looking to, you know, find of your work, your future work again. So don't go and do something different. And I haven't really listened to that, to be honest, <laughs> partly because I like to sort of explore different genres and different paths. And to your point of keeping your, yourself entertained also as a writer, um, I think there's more than just one method to do it. So um, Finding my audience has definitely changed, evolved, and that has been fun and had its own challenges along the way as well. I don't know if any of that makes sense, but no, it, does. Uh, it does. But I do. I mean, I do like one-on-one -on -one contact. I like talking to my audiences. I like talking to you today. I like the idea of whoever is listening to this podcast and using this as a method to talk to them. I love doing it in the traditional manner in a bookstore with an audience, a live audience, whether that's three people or 30 people, you know, it's been both, <laughs> you know, where I can actually connect with them and they've got questions and it's interactive. And again, part of that is because, you know, it's fun to connect with people one-on-one -on -one in a different way each time rather than having this template of here's my speech. Oh gosh, nothing could be more boring than that, right? Um, and your stories evolve. The sequels evolve. The next pieces evolve. I get ideas from my audience. I feed off of that. Now it's not always possible to do that, which is why uh, the online methods and the digital formats are of course fantastic. And the a little bit of the downside of that, not complete downside, is the limitation, let's just say, is they do tend to be a one-way thing. Okay, I can say whatever I'm going to say on this podcast, but it's not, I'm not, you know, the audience doesn't have a chance to participate. Of course, uh, I am lucky in many situations, in cases where I will hear from the audience later. 
they'll send me emails or they'll send questions or they'll hit me up on my social media. And I do try my best to have as much of an interactive conversation with uh, audience members as I can, because I think it's important. That's what I do and want to do with the authors and the stories I follow. Yeah, and I think it, it's always interesting to me to see, like, this stuff is out there. Once it's once it's released into the world, it's not like, I mean, I guess this is true of, like, an Instagram post, too. But I feel like the shelf life of an Instagram post or a tweet, much shorter than of a book or of a movie or album, music, things like that. And yeah. people will come across stuff sometimes years later. And it's just so cool to be like, oh, this wasn't brand new, but, like, now you're connecting with it and i kind of want to go back to the digital tools uh, mm-hmm. that you were talking about because i mean i wasn't alive 50 years ago but the book publishing industry from my understanding 50 years ago a lot different than what it looks like today now we've got all kinds of technology platforms that can help spread the word we've got far more self-publishing options i think 50 years ago your self-publishing yeah. might have been writing it down on a piece of paper and then like physically handing it out to people. And that was, that was your one, your one goal of it. And I, this is, this is a little bit of a uh, tangential analogy, I guess, because it was with music, but I play in a band and we had music come out earlier this month and I found a little platform. I'll give him a shout out. It's been fun. Submit hub uh, where you can share your songs with other people and like hear other songs. So like, in probably like a 30 minute span, I was like, okay, there's people across the world hearing this and offering feedback on it and saying like, oh, I like this. I add it to my playlist or like, oh, I don't like how this is mixed. And I'm like, well, it's the mastered version. So I'm sorry. That's uh, sad. <laughs> uh, but then hearing like other songs too. And I'm like, oh, I would, you know, I'll add this to my playlist like that. And I can't imagine that in in the pre-technology days of like like i'd have to fly to the country and like happen to stumble into someone playing a live show or something like that and it's just so cool how it's evolved like that but also there's a c now and it, it can be harder to stand out sometimes so what have you found from a technology perspective that has worked well for you i have found so much or or quite a bit that i am experimenting with, and I am discovering more along the way. Now, some of this, um, I think, is very useful. Other aspects of it can be very contentious. Authors and people in the creative industry have huge opinions, rightly so, perhaps, um, where there is this concern and worry about, you know, AI generating stories and taking away creativity and, oh, you can write an entire Harry Potter book, <laughs> you know, through chat GPT and so forth. And I, I'm, I don't know. I'm not sure that all of that is entirely true. Certainly there are aspects of it. The one thing I will say is before I talk about, you know, some examples of the technology is that AI is not going away. It's definitely not going away. So instead of, Standing up here as AI activists, if you will, you know, battling it and sort of complaining about it. And, oh, it's taking away my job. Why not try to perhaps embrace what it can do and how you can use it effectively to either collaborate, like you mentioned with Submit Hub, get feedback, generate work, whatever it might be. So 
for example, there are some platforms out there. Plotter is one of them, which helps you plot your novel. And I think this is very useful because when you are writing a novel, when you are writing a screenplay, when you are writing a narrative fiction, audio script, whatever it might be, right? There is a plot structure that you that must be developed that's part of the storytelling. And there are different sort of set templates out there, if you will, Save the Cat, Hero's Journey, um, etc. Many, many more. And you might like one, I might like another, another author might like a third. What Plotter allows you to do is to sort of pick your template of choice, let's say it's Save the Cat, and plot your novel that you are in the process of writing according to the plot points um, that are deemed to be important in the Save the Cat method. I mean, that's one example. I think this is great because it helps you keep on track. I mean, all too often, otherwise, you know, we can get lost, just, you know, end up with 500 pages and there's no high point, there's no low point, or it's just, you know, it's dragged on for too long, you know, whatever the, the situation might be. Um, so why not use something like this to... Uh, aid you and benefit you in the writing process rather than deter you or let you sort of go off the beaten path too much, <laughs> right? With something like a chat GPT or Bard AI on Google or, you know, Pseudorite, I think is another one. Pseudorite's a little bit different, but let's say these two. You know, I don't think I have experimented with them. I have messed around with them. I have not seen that they could just generate a quality novel. <laughs> I, I, and I don't at this point, at least believe that they can. I do think that they can be useful in helping generate, let's say, and not even a complete outline, but portions of an outline. I think there's a lot of back and forth, certainly, that I have found that I have to do is like give the AI program, uh, you know, an instruction. It'll spit out something. Some of it or a lot of it might be gibberish. Then take some aspect of that, give the instruction again, let it refine, things like that. You have to go through several steps to actually get to something that you would think is, you know, halfway quality. <laughs> but perhaps... That can be helpful and create some efficiency and allow you to save some time, certainly research. You know, if you're writing a nonfiction piece, of course, you're going to have to come up with source material and citations and all that kind of stuff. In the old days, we would look at Google, perhaps spend hours on it. And then, of course, even in the older, older days, go to the library, <laughs> work with the librarian. I mean, the real librarian, right? The, the human. Um and a lot of that, I think, can be circumvented is perhaps not the right word, but um, helped, supported, you know, by talking to an AI program to come up with, let's say, a list of relevant source articles. You still have to cite them. You still have to quote them. You still have to read them, analyze them in order to uh, write out your material. But the research process might become more efficient. And lastly, I will say, when it comes to editing, again, I right now am not in favor of just turning completely to AI in favor of a good, solid human editor. However, you want to, you know, really make the most of, you know, funds 
that you use or that you have disposable income to hire that editor in the first place by giving them the best piece of material possible. So if you can use AIs to sort of fix typos or sentence structure or, you know, get your content to as best a state as you can before giving it to the editor, I think that you are doing both yourself and that editor a service. So hopefully that makes some sense. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. Yes. I'm a big plotter fan as well. I actually only recently learned about it and I was just like, this is so helpful. I love it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think to to the point of that you kind of mentioned at the beginning of that, of how the the AI activists worried that it'll take your jobs. Like there there may be instances. Like I've I remember reading some I think it was a Washington Post article recently where they had interviewed some people where it was like a copywriter had had gotten let go because they were turning to chat GPT. And I think that company is going to learn pretty quickly that the copy is not going to be as good because ChatGPT, Bard, whoever you're using, or I should say whichever one you're using, doesn't have the human element to it, which I think is the the big differentiator that a lot of people are overlooking. It's like, yes, it can pull from a lot of websites, but it's just pulling either based off like search rankings or keywords or things like that. But if you have a certain type of experience that you can infuse into your writing. That's like such a huge differentiator that I think a lot of people are overlooking. They're just like, oh, I write about this stuff. And like these AI programs can write about it too. What am I going to do? And it's like, no, no, no. Like you have unique things that an AI, at least not yet, maybe in 20 years, they'll all be in our brains and they can they can get our personal uh, experiences and, and write them perfectly. But for now, for now. Absolutely. I mean... One of the things that's happening and very topical right now is a writer's strike in Hollywood. And amongst other things, one of the key topics that the Writers Guild is negotiating um, with execs and production companies and so forth is uh, this whole thing about AI. And for TV writers, will the idea of a writer's room go away? And I think the two are related because AI, we... I think it's clear it can be a very good collaborator. That's what we've been talking about, right? So you can use it as a collaborator. If I have an AI collaborator, do I really need to have a writer's room to develop my next episode for whatever TV show? And I think to your point, the answer is, well, you may fire all the writers and just rely on AI, but are you going to have real quality? I mean, it's a joke, but recently we were discussing in one of the writers groups that, you know, showrunners will often say, okay, everybody in my writer's room, go home. We're all exhausted. We're not coming up with great ideas. Go and have an argument with your spouse and your family members and guaranteed you'll come back tomorrow morning with more material. And it's true. That's the kind of thing that happens. Even for book writers groups, critique groups, writing groups, you know, I know that when I'm talking with my peers, many of us will devolve into, oh my gosh, the family, the kids, the spouse, the mother, all that kind of nonsense. But, you know, it creates, it's fodder for, you know, somebody will invariably say, hey, what about, you know, if you use that, you know, because your character is kind of similar to your mother and, or there's shades of similarity. And what if you wove that in, and it just gives you ideas. You can't get that from AI. I don't think, because AI doesn't know what a pain in the neck mom was this morning. (laughs) (laughs) 
or you were. <laughs> Depends on whose perspective. Exactly. <laughs> oh, I like that. Now, this this could perhaps be aided by AI as well, but something else. We're going to specifically focus on authors for this, but I think it's probably applicable across other sort of creative things. We're writing for ourselves, for our audience. We, we've got our nice little story here. It's turned into a book. Now, how can we get people to buy it? Isn't this the question? <laughs> <laughs> I've been asked three times today in different meetings and just that all of us ever talk about. And there is, since we're talking about authors, there's not one author that I know and pretty much I'm guaranteeing that you know of that has written that book or that manual or that, you know, process document <laughs> on how to efficiently market your book. So it will be a bestseller. <laughs> um, so, I mean, a lot of this is, okay, so what are the platforms that I'm putting my book out on? So sales platforms, right? The tried and tested, Amazon, KDP, Barnes and Nobles, bookshop.org, whatever it might be. There, there are many more, but let's say those are some of the main ones. But just putting your book there with a description, that's not going to do it for you. Then comes the whole SEO around that. So that in your descriptions, you're using keywords and phrases that people are looking for. And that is a process that can be easier or not so easy. If I self-published my book and I control the Amazon page, then it's perhaps easier. However, oftentimes I am relying most of the time, in fact, I'm relying on a publisher who does not let me control my page. And it is a nightmare getting across. Now that's not as say every single publisher is a nightmare. Think about it. (laughs) (laughs) Publishers have this whole portfolio of authors and they're not going to meet your needs instantly. And you know, when you want, (laughs) you know, and then they'll make mistakes as well. And you'll catch those mistakes because you're the author and that can go on just endlessly. Um, Then it's about the reviews. With Amazon, it's how many reviews, the quality of the reviews. Has the review come from a verified source like, um, you know, U.S. uh, News or, you know, some online reviewer that is uh, reputed and respected? Or has it come from your mother? Or has it come from your mother who actually bought a copy of the book from Amazon, which Okay, that's better quality than just your mother, (laughs) right? So the quality and the quantity of the reviews to really, you know, kick in the efficacy of the algorithm. Then you go to things like ads, ads on Amazon, ads on Facebook, ads anywhere else on Google, you know, pointing to your book, right? There are so many things that an author can do to basically get visibility to their book. And I think it comes down to how much of that you do or how efficiently you do it to get the eyeballs to your book versus others in the category or others in the genre, other similar ones. As an author, I like to connect as best as I can directly with my audiences. Some of that comes through social media, but 
the real quality comes through my newsletter program, my email program, where I am literally talking directly to you. And again, you might say, well, how is that not one-sided? Because that's an email from me to you. But the thing is, I do interact. I ask for feedback. I do do lives on a private basis for those um, audience members that have signed up specifically for my email, for my newsletter, so that I can give them my attention. And then I offer them not just my attention, because it's not like about me at the other end of a screen talking to them. For some of them, they like that. But the reason that they're signing up is because they read my work and they liked it. So I am going out on a limb to write more for them, to offer them bonus chapters that were not included in the book. The book may have ended and it may not even be part of a series, but I can still write an isolated episode, a bonus chapter featuring those characters that you read about and fell in love with because you are part of my newsletter program. I like that. And a good reminder, because I feel like a lot of people, when I've brought this up of like, oh yeah, I replied to this newsletter and had a conversation. They were like, you can do that. Like you can reply to a newsletter. And so I'm glad you called that out because I think it's a surprise to some people, but it's a great, it's a great way. And, and I know it, I'm sure you're the same way. Like you get that feedback and you hear from people like that. It like brightens your whole day. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I am very, very uh, engaged with my audiences and especially the audiences that have signed up for my newsletter program, because those are the ones that I can truly communicate with back and forth in a very direct manner. This week on Good People, Cool Things, I'm excited to feature a really funny podcast that is perfect for anyone who hates censorship. It's called Bandcamp, and it's hosted by the hilarious duo of Jennifer and Dan. Bandcamp is a comedy podcast where they read banned books and try to figure out why they were banned in the first place. I had to do a presentation on obscenity in college, talking about two live crew and all kinds of things, the parental advisory sticker. So I'm a big fan of this podcast's spirit and theme. This season, they're reading Ray Bradbury's classic Fahrenheit 451, one chapter at a time, out loud. If you think banning books is a slippery slope toward a not-so-great future... Bandcamp is definitely the podcast for you. Whether you're like Jennifer, curious to read the book for the first time, or like Dan and a little too lazy to read it yourself, you'll love Bandcamp. It's a funny show and a great concept. So don't miss out on this one-of-a-kind podcast. Look for Bandcamp. That's band like B-A-N-N-E-D, two N's, on your favorite podcast player and subscribe today. Let's get banned together. And now let's get back to the show. I do want to talk... Very quickly, because you've also done two podcasts, Shadow Realm and True Fiction Project. They're, they're different styles of show, I, in that one, one is more conversational and one is narrative audio fiction, which I, like, I love those podcasts. I've never done one myself. I would like to at some point, but I'm like, let me just listen. Let me get, let me get some good inspiration from these other ones. So was was i guess we can go back since uh shadow realm is is the older of these two um did you always want to do a podcast like that or like how did that all come together yeah that is such a great question okay so 
I'm from India, so I've been reincarnated a few times <laughs> in this life. Uh, um, and in sort of a previous uh, occupation, I was a radio journalist for many years. Um, I have worked on public radio and then I have worked on commercial radio as well. Bloomberg, financial news, very different to either of my podcasts um, or any of my books, um, although I have written one book about personal finance, but that's still different. Anyway, um, Shadow Realm is part one of the Aria Chronicles, which is a series. And I wrote the book. Uh, I published a version of the book in India by an Indian publisher for the Indian market only and decided that that was not um, representative of the entire series or the way I wanted it to go. So um, I developed the manuscript further to publish here. And then I have gotten several offers from different publishing companies and for some reason or the other, I have not decided which to go with because there's something about each one that, I don't know, I, I'm not there yet. <laughs> I also uh, developed a graphic novel manuscript and uh, that won a contest. Um, actually, it was a finalist, I should say. It didn't win. It was a finalist in the script to comic contest. So I also have a graphic novel script. And then that led me to think, huh, interesting. Should I publish a graphic novel first or a long form menu, a long form novel first? That got me thinking. And then I, while I was messing around with all those thoughts, I decided to do what I knew best, which was audio. Um, but I didn't want to do sort of any old audio. I knew I wanted it to be narrative fiction, I knew I wanted it to be a musical. So I actually found a musician partner who created the music from scratch, Indian music with Western instruments um, using chants from the public do domain. It's a fantasy fiction story and it ties into ancient Indian mythology. So it's a little bit um, of a combination of uh, a boy in San Francisco and this is his contemporary life. And then he falls into this land of the ancient Indian mythology. Um, one thing leads to another. So I, I basically wrote the script, the audio script, had it developed, had it edited, um, found producers who were not me because <laughs> that was the whole idea. If I was going to produce it all on my own, then I would give it stepchild treatment because I had other jobs day jobs at the time. Um, but I found my production team. We cast the characters. We did the whole thing and I released it. This was in 2020. And then very soon after it got picked up by a company called Spoken Layer, they fell in love with it and they said, we want to acquire this. We want to fund you for season two and three, which was actually book two. So I wrote book two. I was in the process of writing it and then I finished it up and season two actually drops fairly soon. August oh 14th was the date that I was given this morning. I had forgotten about that. <laughs> <laughs> I knew we were planning it for the back to school timeframe because, you know, it's, it's young adult, but uh, I was given the date this morning. The producer, the head producer says, 
It's dropping August 14th, Renita. Did you know that? Did you know that day? I was like, I did not know that. <laughs> so do look out for it because season two sounds fabulous, even more fabulous than season one. And this is not a question of I'm so close to it that I cannot kill my darlings because... <laughs> Uh, one of the reasons why I didn't do the sound editing myself was because I was very nitpicky about sound and this particular story because it ties into the ancient Indian mythology, the pronunciations, the making sure that the philosophical um, storyline fits and it makes sense in the Western world and, you know, all that stuff. So <laughs> that was a very long-winded answer to how did that come about. <laughs> no, I liked it. That's very exciting too. Season two right around the corner. So we will keep an eye out for that. In the meantime, similar kind of topic here, but if you had, well, I should, I should preface this as I always do. If there's a question you wish yeah. you were asked more frequently and for you, it's if you had the free will to cast whoever you wanted in the movie version of Operation Mom, which we've barely talked about, but <laughs> your, your work, Operation Mom, who would you cast? This is an interesting one because let me let me give you a quick snapshot of Operation Mom before I answer the question and here's why. I wrote Operation Mom as a book. The book, I'm very excited to say, has won five awards, um, three of them grand prizes in the romance categories, young adult and satire as well. And for, you know, independent readers, Discovery Award, the Eric Hoffer, which is a very respectable award and the Chanticleer International Book Awards. Anyway, uh, the book is about a 17-year-old girl in contemporary Mumbai who wants to get her annoying single mother off her back, so decides to set her up through the dating apps. I did write a screenplay based upon the book, so an adapted version, but I set the story here in the U.S., actually in Hoboken, New Jersey. So it's the same story with the same characters. However, um, aside from mom, the daughter, and um, the dad, I mean, these are the South Asian characters. It's a diversity story, but everybody else is not South Asian. So, uh, and then things change because it's comedy. It's young adult rom-com, which is a little bit more calm than rom, which is what one reviewer said. And I love that review. It's my favorite. <laughs> so I'm going with that. Um, obviously, comedy is about timing and dialogue and context. So, you know, language, it, it changes. So the context changes from the book. So if I am to take the screenplay set in Hoboken, New Jersey. I've thought about this quite a bit. And I think Ela, who is the protagonist, I would love it if uh, she would be played by Maitri uh, Ramakrishnan from Never Have I Ever. I'd love that. She's the right age. She is great. Or Liza Koshi. Lisa Koshi or Liza? I don't know if it's Lisa or Liza, but Liza Koshi. Um, she is another wonderful comedy South Asian actress. I'm not sure about the mom because I don't want mom who is too pretty. <laughs> and a lot of the Bollywood actresses are beautiful. You know, mom needs to be a little bit more sort of zany, wacko, down to earth. But she needs to be an immigrant. If she were not an immigrant, I would straight off say Mindy Kaling. Straight off. Right now, she's written as an immigrant, and Ila, her daughter, is American-born. So there is that conflict, the two of them dysfunction, you know. Um, 
if mom were changed, if that character were changed and tweaked to not be an immigrant, then I would say Mindy Kaling. But dad, Kumel Nanjiani. Oh my God. <laughs> Please, Kumel, are you listening? Where are you? That would be my dream. That would be my dream because dad is this confused character who's in a kerfuffle who cannot get in a word edgewise amongst all these crazy women. And I can only see Kumel Nanjiani in He's so great as a comedy actor, South Asian actor. I would just love him to play this role. <laughs> all right, well, we're speaking it out into existence. I was recently watching uh, the Murderville that he's in, which is just, yeah, like just a, the peak of... Yeah. Both, both spoken, but particularly his physical comedy in it is just so his, his physical comedy, his facial expressions, his just his whole persona, and he he's got so much range. It's it's not this one kind of character that he's developed one style and he does the same thing over and over again. It's not like that at all. Which is why I I just would so love to put him in this role and see what he will make of it. I just can't think of anyone else. I've just shut out everybody else. <laughs> oh fantastic well we're yes we're speaking it out into existence and i'll look forward to seeing it on the big screen in fantastic a <laughs> thank you <laughs> i will tell you first when it happens <laughs> all right renita you're almost off the hook here but we always like to wrap up with a top three for you your top three books or movies featuring the south asian experience oh my gosh that is such a difficult one because there's so much good stuff and um not good stuff but there's so much good stuff you know out there books or movies featuring the south asian experience i'm going to go back to some of my all-time favorites firstly there are a lot of great contemporary um south asian books more and more and more and so i do have a category of favorite which changes almost monthly or um every few weeks as I discover newer South Asian authors. However, I'm going to go back to some of my all-time favorites, which are also a little bit contentious. One of them is The Jungle Book by Rudyard Kipling. This is very, very old. I grew up on these stories as a child, and I was just fascinated by how they took me into the jungles of India, which now is becoming a mystical landscape in and of itself. There has been quite a bit of contentiousness, contention, 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 I don't know what the right word is, uh, in recent years about the fact that they were written by Rudyard Kipling. He was British. He was not exactly Indian, but he grew up in India. And, you know, other things, oh, he was racist and cultural appropriation. All, all these things have come up recently. However you know, you really get a picture of the animals and the, I mean, the story of Mowgli and the animals, the jungle book, you know, the traditional story that was Disney-fied along the way. That's the one that everybody knows of. But there are other stories. The one, my all-time favorite was Ricky Tiki Tavi about a mongoose. And, you know, it was really a way for us to learn about how the mongoose fights the snake how it's important to have that in the villages. So you get, you know, the, the, the ecological aspect, the jungle aspect, the biological aspect, the cultural aspect. And it really taught us about rural India. 
So I love the I, I love Rudyard Kipling. I love his work. I love the stories of the Jungle Book. Um, the other one, which is very slow, that comes to mind is Arkit Narayan's Malgudi Days, and this is story of village life in India. It is very slow. I mean, today when authors write novels, it's about pacing and plotting and you know not breakneck speed, but keeping things moving. And, you know, otherwise audiences are going to lose interest. And this is so slow, I cannot tell you. But you know what? So is or was, certainly was, life in rural India, in the villages. It was slow. There was not a whole lot going on. I don't know what it's like today, but it really captures that essence. Yeah. So those are two of my favorite sets of books. Also, Man-Eaters of the Kamaun, which talked about uh, the man-eating tigers of the, uh, of the Kamaun. Um, these are all books that I grew up on. In terms of movies, I'm going to mention two. One is Bend It Like Beckham, which everybody knows about. That is the story of the South Asian community in England, which I really think is very true because this is a set, I mean, the Indian diaspora and the South Asian diaspora exists all over the world. You've got South Asians in Australia and the US, and but the way the community is captured in that film is very, very honest to goodness, honest to the truth. As it is in Bhaji on the Beach, which is one of Gurinder Chadda's first films, um, also shot in England sometime in the 80s, I want to say. I, I don't know exactly when, but, you know, about these women who are having these picnics on the beach. It's very true to the core and really gives you uh, an honest window into the community. There's one more film um, I'm thinking of recently. I'm not remembering that. I'm just having a brain freeze. It's about a boy... Um, who grows up in the 80s in England and his experience is Bruce Springsteen and he oh uh, blinded by the light yes yeah. blinded by the light thank you <laughs> when I saw that film I was like oh my gosh that is the story of me and us the music Bruce Springsteen he was a figure at the time of course I was in love with George Michael which is there's an anecdote about that, which is cut from my life and pasted into my fictional book, Operation Mom. So, uh, <laughs> spoiler alert. But that, again, was a very true and typical story, and it really portrayed the South Asian community the, the way it is. So, all of the movies I've mentioned are set in England. What does that say? <laughs> <laughs> it's a good setting. It's a good setting. It's a good setting, but uh, I think we need to produce Operation Mom so we can, you know, have one. Yes, <laughs> Just, yes, I like I can, plan. Yeah, <laughs> here, here. Well, Renita, thank you so much. This was so much fun. I feel like I learned a lot. I've got books and movies now that I need to go watch or, re I guess, read in the case of books. But if people want to learn more about you, check out your books, check out the movie once it's out, where can they find you? Thank you. Everything is available on my website, which is www.renitamyname.com. R-E-E-N-Financy-I-T-A. 
So www.renita.com. And my website has on the front page, you'll see the sign up to my newsletter program. So please do sign up because I will be engaging with you right off the bat. And then it has various tabs, which will lead to my books, my screenplays, the ones that are available, producers out there, if you're listening, <laughs> Kumail, Ranjiani, <laughs> uh, and others for, you know, for the other screenplays, my podcasts, you know, if you want to listen to those, follow those, sign up for those, etc. cetera. Um, and certainly all of my social media handles, the usual suspects, TikTok and Instagram, all of them, they're all there. So I would encourage you to definitely check out my website and uh, you'll get everything there. Fantastic. Well, thank you again. This was a blast. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure to be on your show. I have loved the conversation. I can't believe we have to end it. Oh. <laughs> I know. I know. All good things have to come to an end. But of course, before we wrap up, we have to end with a corny joke, as we always do. And why couldn't the crummy sailor learn the alphabet? Uh, the crummy sailor. I, I, just, I wish I could give you a smart answer. <laughs> I could give you a dumb answer. <laughs> I don't know. Tell us. He always got lost at sea. Oh. Get after it, people. <laughs> <laughs> Good People, Cool Things is produced in Austin, Texas. If you were a fan of this episode, go ahead and hit that follow button. That helps more people hear the show. You can send me a message, joey at goodpeoplecoolthings.com. Thank you to all of the guests who have been on Good People, Cool Things. You can check out all the old episodes via goodpeoplecoolthings.com. As always, thank you for listening and have a wonderful day.